pray together. Father, we thank you this morning that you are perfectly faithful to us. Every single promise in your word is faithful. Your promise to be with us at every moment is faithful. You will never let one word fall to the ground of what you have spoken. And so we rest in your faithfulness, Lord. We thank you that as we just sang, there's new mercies every morning because of your faithfulness and that your mercies never fail. I'm just so thankful to belong to you and be your children because of Christ and to know your faithful care for us. I pray for anyone who is here this morning who doesn't know you as their Lord and God and King, doesn't know Jesus as their Savior, or that even today you might open their blind eyes to see that Jesus is the one they need, the only one who can rescue. Lord, as we open your word, would you be faithful as you have always been to open our eyes to see wonderful things by the Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to understand what you have said to us. Lord, help us to be strengthened in our faith because of your word to us. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Francis Schaeffer wrote a book called He is There and He is Not Silent. The title expresses two realities. First, that there is a God who exists. And second, we don't have to guess what this God is like because he has made himself known. Our text for today tells us some of the things that God has revealed about himself and an appropriate response for those who know him. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Psalm 9 as we continue our study of summer psalms. Psalm 9. We're going to start with the revelation of God. Just look at the first phrase of verse 16. The Lord has made himself known. Ben Stein once asked Richard Dawkins about the origin of life. If you're not familiar with Richard Dawkins, Al Mohler just called him the world's most famous atheist uh, this week in his article about him. So Dawkins said he didn't really know, but when Stein pressed him, he said, Life was seeded on our planet by some kind of highly developed aliens. And so Stein asked him, what will you say if you find out there really is a God? And Dawkins replied, why did you take such pains to hide yourself? And here's Psalm 9 saying, the Lord has made himself known. He is not hiding himself from us. He is revealing himself to us. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 beginning at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven 
against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. So God has spoken clearly through creation. All people everywhere have sufficient evidence to know there is a great, all-powerful God who is worthy of honor and thanks. God has spoken not only through creation, but through his word and through his son. Go to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 1 and 2. God, after he spoke... Long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son. So we don't have to settle for our culture's belief that whatever you think or whatever you feel about God is right for you and that everybody's opinions about what God is like is just as good as everybody else's opinions Our thoughts about God are either accurate or inaccurate depending on how closely they line up with what God has said about himself in his word. Well, obviously we can't cover everything that God has revealed about himself in one message. We need the whole Bible to see all that God has said is true of him. So this morning I just want to focus on three truths about God that are highlighted in Psalm 9. First, God has made himself known as sovereign king. Verse 7. But the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment. The margin in my Bible says the Lord sits as king forever. If you have ESV, sits enthroned forever. Or if you have NIV, reigns Forever, And all those phrases are expressing the fact that God has the supreme right, absolute authority, and unlimited power to do whatever he wants to do. Psalm 103 verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Or Daniel 4 verse 35 He does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Or Ephesians 1.11, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. J.I. Packer put it this way. God exercises purposeful management and control over everything, everywhere, all the time. And nothing happens without his being involved. The Lord reigns. We should believe, even when we cannot yet see it, that all events will eventually appear to us as matter for praise. 
God knows what he is doing and is in the process of achieving something wise and good every moment. So earlier in the service, we sang, you are sovereign over us. And that is really good news. It seems pretty often, maybe not every week, but every week or two, I'm part of a conversation and we start talking about how concerning things are getting in the world or how concerning things are getting in our country or how concerning things are in somebody's individual life. And at some point I try to remind myself and the other person, yeah, but the good news is God is on the throne. Just, I want to hear, I want to listen. There is a lot to be concerned about, not minimizing that, but the bottom line is still that God is on the throne. Or as a brother just said it just this week as he's talking about some uncertainties in his future, he said, God's got this. That's a good summary of God's sovereignty. God's got this. God is governing all things in this world and all things in our lives according to his perfect plan. Everything is under control, namely his sovereign control. Second, the Lord has made himself known as the righteous judge. Psalm 9 mentions three time frameworks for this. First, God has already carried out some judgment. Look at verse 4. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne judging righteously. So David's looking back at an experience. He's come through. He was being persecuted by enemies. And God upheld his cause. He was in the right. God judged in the past and showed that he was on the right side. David experiences a a desire that God would act as judge In verse 19, Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. So this isn't happened yet. He wants God to act on his behalf. And then third, David is confident that God will judge in the future. Verse 7 and 8. The Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment. And he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. So we don't have the option to say, the God I believe in would never judge anyone. If you be- Our opinions about God and what we think he is like or what we think he should be like, according to our preferences, don't really carry any weight What matters is what God has said about himself. And in Psalm 9 and a whole lot of other texts, God tells us he is a judge. That is good news if you're in good standing with God. If you belong to God and you have been ripped off. I had a boy tell me this morning about a toy they had gotten at a certain toy store and it broke after the first time. He said, They ripped us off. So you don't have to be very old to figure out there's injustice in this world. You've been ripped off, taken advantage of, treated unfairly, wronged in some way by someone. Knowing God is the righteous judge means that God will settle all accounts perfectly. He will right every wrong. He will vindicate his people either in this life or certainly in the life 
to come. It's good news to know God will set everything straight. But it's bad news if you are not in a right relationship with God. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment. Referring to that verse, Bunyan's pilgrim tells evangelist, Sir, I understand from reading this book in my hand that I am condemned to die and after that to come to judgment. I am not willing to do the first nor able to do the second. Then Evangelist asked, Why are you not willing to die since this life is attended with so many evils? The man answered, Because I am afraid that this burden that is on my back is sin will sink me lower than the grave, and I shall fall into hell. And if I am not ready to die, then I am not ready to go to judgment, and from there to execution. And thinking of these things distresses me greatly. And if God is convicting you that you're not ready to stand before him on the day of judgment, first confess, I am not innocent. I am guilty before a holy God. I have disobeyed and dishonored him. I deserve to be condemned at the judgment seat for all of my sins. Listen to Romans 3. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one And verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. So God has these holy standards summarized in the law and every human being is silenced and stands guilty Before God. That's all of us. And then we turn from sin. Go to Acts 17. Acts 17. Paul's in Athens. And he's giving a message. And as he's getting to the application, in verse 30, he says, Therefore... Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Why? He quotes Psalm 9. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. That's right out of Psalm 9. And then he elaborates, through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So you remember Jesus said, the Father has given me the authority to judge. Third, acknowledge I can't do anything to change the verdict. I can't plea bargain by appealing to all the good things I've done. Second Timothy 1.9 says, he saved us and called us with a holy calling, 
not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. We don't contribute anything. We can't offer anything and say, look, doesn't this count? Doesn't this help make up for the bad things? It's not according to works. And so we trust Christ alone as God's provision for forgiveness and righteousness. Believe that Christ's death on the cross is the only remedy for our guilt. Jesus died as a substitute for sinners. He took the punishment that was due for our sins upon himself and then rose again from the dead to show he had done everything necessary to restore us to our right relationship with God. Romans 4.25, speaking of Jesus, says, He was delivered over because of our transgressions. He died for our sins and was raised because of our justification. What, why would he say that? Justification is declared right in God's sight, perfectly acceptable before God. And Jesus was raised to show that had been accomplished in full because our unrighteousness has been paid for by Jesus and then Christ's perfect righteousness has been counted to us by faith. Paul says it this way, I want to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So that is how we can be ready for the judgment day. It is coming. It's already been appointed a day and who the judge is. And the only way any of us will stand on that day instead of being condemned to hell on that day is if we have our sins forgiven by the blood of Christ and we are counted righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. Well, the Lord has made himself known as the sovereign king. Therefore, everything is under his control. You can rest in that. And the Lord has made himself known as the righteous judge. Therefore, evil does not have the last word. And a third truth that we see about God in Psalm 9 is that he has made himself known as a merciful refuge. And therefore, his afflicted people have hope. To be afflicted means to be distressed so severely as to cause persistent suffering or anguish. And maybe you'd say, I must be afflicted. Let's look at three phrases about how God deals with those experiencing troubles that are hard to bear. First, verse 9. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. A stronghold or a refuge is a place of safety that offers protection from danger or harm. God is a refuge for all his people. We see that in Psalm 62, 8, it says, Oops. Trust in him at all times, O people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. But Psalm 9 is saying, yes, he's a refuge for all of his people. And in a special way, he is a refuge, a place of safety, a stronghold for the oppressed. Which means the burdened or the crushed. The crushed. We can flee to him in time of 
trouble. Nahum 1, verse 7 says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Verse 12 and 13, back in Psalm 9. For he who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord, see my affliction from those who hate me. So David's saying, God remembers the cry of the afflicted. He hears our groans and doesn't ignore our prayers Go to the book of Exodus, chapter 2. Exodus, chapter 2. The last part of verse 23 says, The sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage And they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. And then chapter 3, verse 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So God knows all about whatever it is that's afflicting you. You don't have to guess. I wonder if God knows what this is like, what I'm going through, what this feels like. Yes, he does. He, he hears the very groans you make. He hears the sighs. When we can't even pray articulate words, he hears And then also in Psalm 9, look at verse 18. For the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Now, David doesn't mean God actually forgets and then someday he'll remember again. God is perfect, so he doesn't forget It's more about perception. It feels like God has forgotten. David himself felt that way. Remember Psalm 13 earlier this summer? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? So even a man after God's own heart felt forgotten by God. But here he's saying that won't last. You won't always be forgotten. David is reminding himself and the rest of God's people, don't give up your hope even though it's taking longer than you think it should for God to answer your prayer for help, he will bring about a good ending to the season of affliction at the right time. He will not let us be ashamed that we put our hope in him. Our hope won't perish. So how should we respond to what God has said about himself in Psalm 9? David starts off the psalm with joyful thanks in the first two verses. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. And that's an expression of thanks for the fact that God has come through for him already. And in verse 11, he calls on us, 
Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare among the peoples his deeds. So that's a response for us that he calls for. But I'd really like to focus on verse 10. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Verse could also be rendered, let those who know your name put their trust in you. So God's name is a shorthand expression for all that he has revealed about his character. It's a one-word summary of all his names and titles and attributes. So for example, if you've ever seen the Westminster's standards, in the larger catechism, in answer to the question, what is God? God is a spirit in and of himself infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection. All-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. We can't say that every time we say God. So we say the name of God. The name of God means everything I just read and more. (laughs) Everything God has said about himself to be true in his word. So did you see the connection in verse 10 between knowing God's name and trusting him? Those who know your name will put their trust in you. Or let those who know your name put their trust in you. The better we know someone, of course, the more we trust them. For example, we might ask a complete stranger for directions if we get lost. And even GPS doesn't always help you, right? Somebody just told me this week they get out in the country and GPS lets them down. So you might have to ask a farmer, hey, how do I get to this place? You can ask a stranger to do that, but you wouldn't ask a stranger for marriage advice. We might trust a mechanic to fix our car, but we wouldn't ask him to take out our appendix. We might trust a neighbor to watch our house for a few days while we're gone, but we wouldn't necessarily ask him to watch our kids for a few days. All that to say, the better we know someone, the deeper the level of trust. And the same is true in our relationship with God. The more we know God, the more we know what he is like, the more we will put our trust in him. This is from Matthew Henry. The better God is known, the more he is trusted. Those who know him to be a God of infinite wisdom will trust him further than they can see him. Those who know him to be a God of almighty power will trust him when creature confidences fail and they have nothing else to trust to. Those who know him to be a God of infinite grace will trust him though he slay them. Those who know him to be a God of inviolable truth and faithfulness will rejoice in his word of promise and rest upon that though the performance be deferred. In other words, God made a promise and it's taking a long time for it to happen. 
and intermediate providences seem to contradict it. When I look at my circumstances, it sure doesn't look like this is working good. And those who know him to be an everlasting father will trust him with their souls at all times, even to the end. So you see this connection? The more we know God through his word, the more we grow in our trust for him. And then notice the reason attached to strengthen the connection between knowing God and trusting him. For, because you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So Psalm 94, verse 14, says, The Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. In Psalm 37, verse 25, David will offer a testimony and says, I have been young and now I am old. Senior saints, you look back at a lifetime of God's faithfulness. Been young, now I'm old, and I've never seen the righteous forsaken. And you never will. And then Hebrews 13:5. He himself has said, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. Let's pray. So, Lord, we thank you that you have made yourself known. Not just in creation, not just through your word, not through just Jesus himself. Lord, thank you that you've made yourself known in our hearts. These dead, cold hearts of ours that could not know you until and unless you did a miracle. Gave us life, gave us eyes to see the beauty of who you are, the sufficiency of who Christ is and what he has done. Lord, to belong to you and know you as our faithful father. Lord, just thank you for all you've done for us. And I pray for those who are your people this morning that we would continue to get to know you better and better. And Lord, that that would show itself more and more in trusting you more and more, no matter what happens tomorrow or the next week or later down the road, Lord, that we would know you so well that we would trust you no matter what. And I pray for anyone who's here who doesn't know you, know about you, they believe you exist, but don't have a relationship with you, that even today they might come to know you through Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.